Greetings and welcome to Renegade Files, episode 18, UFOs in the Vietnam War. Your mission is to proceed up the Nung River in a Navy patrol boat, pick up the UFO's path at Numung Ba, follow it, learn what you can along the way. When you find the ETs, infiltrate their team by whatever means available, and terminate the alien's command. You understand that this operation does not exist, nor will it ever exist. So gear up and come with Renegade Files, your underground connection to paranormal tales, unsolved mysteries, and covert culture. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, coming to you from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This time, we delve into one of the least discussed but fascinating aspects of the mid-century conflicts in Southeast Asia, UFOs in the Vietnam War. From 1955 through 1975, the divided country of Vietnam fought between the communist-aided forces of North Vietnam and the nationalists of South Vietnam in what is officially called the Second Indochina War. About halfway through this calamity, the U.S. and other allied forces sent armed troops to aid in the conflict on the side of the South Vietnamese in a failed attempt to prevent the spread of communism. As much as any armed conflict, the Vietnam War has generated amazing stories of heroism, horror, and political posturing, both successful and unsuccessful. However, there is one topic that finds its way into several of these Vietnam War era tales, UFOs. In this episode, we will explore several such stories that may indicate a presence in the skies over Vietnam beyond helicopters and fighter jets. In 1968, Lieutenant Pete Snyder was in command of patrol boat PCF-12 on missions to counter blockades and stop sea infiltrations into South Vietnam by the North Vietnamese forces led by Ho Chi Minh and aided by the Viet Cong. PCF stands for Patrol Craft Fast, and these boats are also called Swift Boats. They're a bit bigger than the familiar PBRs made famous in the film Apocalypse Now, with PCFs being 50 feet long and having a crew of six, normally. They have aluminum hulls and twin diesel engines. On June 15, 1968, PCF-12 was patrolling a river in the demilitarized zone between North and South Vietnam. This was a routine night patrol in the vicinity of Cua Viet. 
Shortly after midnight, PCF-12 received a distress call from another patrol boat, PCF-19, that was in operation nearby. PCF-19 said that they were under attack by enemy helicopters, which confused the crew of PCF-12 since the North Vietnamese enemies were not known to have or use combat helicopters, at least at that time. PCF-12 immediately headed toward the position of the other boat to offer assistance. They made a few twists and turns along the winding river course until they came out into a wider section where they expected to see PCF-19 on the far side of the bay. What they saw were two bright, round lights above the other boat, and each round light emitted what they called a strange blue glow. As they approached, one of the glowing orbs displayed a bright flash of light, causing the boat below to explode in a fury of white water and flying debris. The two orbs instantly departed seaward with incredible acceleration and Lieutenant Snyder cautiously maneuvered his craft up to the wreckage to search for any survivors. Two wounded men were found and brought aboard PCF-12. The men were shaken by the experience, but both seemed mentally sound. They said that the two orbs had tracked their boat for miles. They said that the objects would come in very close, then pull back, only to dip down closer to their boat again. The two men said that they eventually decided to fire on the crafts, and that is when the object blew them out of the water. Officials initially claimed that the boat had been destroyed by an air-to-ground missile fired from an enemy plane, but an official dispatch from Saigon quotes a military spokesman as attributing the attack to, quote, an unidentified object. PCF-12 continued its patrol upriver and they were soon approached by the same two blue-glowing objects. These orbs took positions 300 yards out on both sides of the boat and about 100 yards in altitude. PCF-12 called radar headquarters and were told that no aircraft were being reported in their area at that time. Snyder ordered his men to fire upon the lights, which seems like a really bad idea considering the recent situation with the other boat and crew, but they did it anyway. Their gunfire had no observable effect on the crafts, and they retreated at full speed down the river. The glowing orbs followed them for some time. Second engine operator Jim Steffies got a good look at the objects, and he said that they had rounded fronts like an observation helo, and that he could see two beings sitting side by side inside the craft. At this time, a group of Phantom F-4 fighter jets appeared and the two UFOs streaked away. The fighter jets pursued them, then the crew of PCF-12 headed out to open sea, and everyone aboard was left wondering what had just happened. On the very same day, June 15, 1968, an Allied ship of the Royal Australian Navy, the HMAS Hobart, was on patrol near Tiger Island. Hobart communication officers reported seeing at least 30 slow-moving, unidentified lights in the night sky around their ship. At first, they thought these objects were Soviet helicopters, but when fighter jets intercepted them, they could see they were not. These objects fled and were once again pursued by the jets. The F-4 fighter jets fired heavily on the crafts and this resulted in the accidental sinking of yet another swift boat, this time from friendly fire. 
The Hobart prepared for battle, and as sailors scrambled to their positions, the radar operators spotted an incoming flying object with no identification numbers and that failed to respond to attempted radio contact. The HMAS Hobart was hit three times, causing one casualty and two injuries by what the men assumed were enemy missiles. This offensive attack on the Hobart prompted a hail of ground-to-air anti-aircraft fire as well as a full attack from the fighter jets. All forces engaged these glowing lights for some time with no discernible effects and eventually the lights flew away and the jets were ordered back to the base. The following day, an extensive search of Tiger Island and the surrounding shallow waters where the battle had taken place turned up not a single bit of helicopter or enemy aircraft wreckage despite a long battle where many of these unknown crafts were fired upon. The Royal Australian Navy News reported, quote, No physical evidence of helicopters destroyed has been discovered in the area of activity, nor has extensive reconnaissance produced any evidence of enemy helicopter operations in or near the DMZ. Men aboard the Hobart who were stationed topside or otherwise had the opportunity to witness the engagement directly said that there was no way these objects were helicopters. In fact, it was common knowledge that by and large the North Vietnamese and their Viet Cong allies in the South had very few helicopters at their disposal and after a certain point those were never used in open combat. This fact, combined with so many UFO sightings in Vietnam, resulted in the soldiers using the slang term, enemy helicopters, to refer to the strange objects they were seeing in the skies all over the area. On October 16, 1973, the U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff General George S. Brown gave a press conference in Illinois where he addressed this terminology to some extent when asked about UFOs in Vietnam, saying, quote, I don't know whether this story has ever been told or not. They weren't called UFOs, they were called enemy helicopters. And they were only seen at night, and they were only seen in certain places. They were seen up around the DMZ in the early summer of 68, and this resulted in quite a little battle. And in the course of this, an Australian destroyer took a hit and we never found any enemy, we only found ourselves when this had all been sorted out. And this caused some shooting there, and there was no enemy at all involved, but we always reacted. Always after dark. The use of this term by the soldiers was also confirmed by patrol boat captain Bill Cooper, who served in Vietnam from 1967 to 1969. And yes, this is the same Bill Cooper who went on to write, Behold a Pale Horse, and Bill Cooper could easily have an episode of his own. During a UFO conference in Los Angeles in 1989, Cooper said, quote, After about five months, I was sent up north to the DMZ to a place called Qua Vive on the Takan River. It was while there that I discovered that there was a tremendous amount of UFO and alien activity in Vietnam. It was always reported in official messages as enemy helicopters. Now, any of you who know anything about the Vietnam War know that the North Vietnamese did not have any helicopters, especially after our first couple of air raids into North Vietnam during 1965. Even if they had, they would not have been so foolish as to bring them over the DMZ because that would have ensured their demise. End quote. 
This designation, which started out as GI slang, may have led military communication departments and any official investigative units to classify all UFOs reported in Vietnam as enemy helicopters. After all, it sounds logical enough to Joe Public. It's a war. We see helicopters flying around on the nightly news every time they talk about Vietnam. If a group of soldiers saw something flying overhead and the brass said it was enemy helicopters, well, that makes perfect sense. That is, unless you were aware of the fact that this particular enemy had no helicopters. Another U.S. ship, the ammunition ship USS Kiluaya, was operating in the Indian Ocean with a destroyer and a carrier. One night at 9 p.m., the men on deck saw something glowing deep underwater. The glowing object grew larger and the deep pale blue-green glow shifted to deep orange and then burst from the water and arched directly over the destroyer just a few hundred yards away on their port side. The men on deck asked others on the bridge if they had seen it and indeed they had. This incident brings Bill Cooper back to mind. Bill Cooper was in the Air Force Strategic Air Command for four years as an aircraft and missile technician. He then joined the Navy in 1965 as a member of ONI. He was a patrol boat captain in Vietnam. He was awarded several medals for his time in Vietnam, including two for valor. He then served on the intelligence briefing team for the commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet. It was on this duty that he witnessed something extraordinary. He was aboard a submarine taking to sea out of Seattle when, while cruising on the surface, Bill Cooper and others saw what we have come to call a USO, or Unidentified Submerged Object. Let's hear his account in his own words. While we were on a transit from the Portland, Seattle area, on the surface, I actually saw, I was the port lookout, uh, and I saw the most incredible thing that I think I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and, it, and it had such a profound effect upon my view of the universe and the world that we live in um, that I wish everybody could experience this. I saw come up out of the ocean from beneath the surface of the sea a huge disc-shaped craft about the size of a midway-class aircraft carrier, which is tremendous in size. Uh, even though that's one of our smallest carriers there was then, um, it's still a huge, tremendously big object. Came up out of the ocean and rose into the air and tumbled on its axis and went up into the clouds. And I was awestruck, dumbstruck. And uh, I mean dumbstruck, literally, I could not utter a sound. Uh, my first um, impulse was to tell the officer of the deck that I'd seen a flying saucer. And then, luckily for me, I couldn't talk. Uh, because on second thought, that's not what I really wanted to say. Uh, because I didn't want to be the only Looney Tunes character on a submarine with a tight-knit crew that you had to live close, in close quarters with, uh, uh, because that's, uh, that's a hell of a way to live. So I told the officer deck that I'd seen something about 15 degrees off the port bow at a relative distance of about two and a half nautical miles. And uh, um, he began to look in that area. And the starboard lookout had heard me tell him this, and he began to look over there. And while we were all three watching, uh, either the same craft or another one exactly like it came down out of the clouds, tumbled again on its, why it did this maneuver, I don't know, but every single time it did it. It's like it came down in this attitude, and then it flipped over, and then entered the water. 
uh, and the water just appeared to open up in front of it. It's just like the, the account in the, in the Bible about the parting of the Red Sea. That's exactly what happened. The sea actually parted, and this thing went into the water and it closed up behind it. And this big spray went up into the air. But it wasn't a spray from the craft hitting the water. It was a spray from the water coming back in to fill up this hole that had been created. And uh, again, you know, I think this, this is incredible. It's, what are we looking at here? And it was metal. It was a machine. And, and it wasn't glowing or anything like that. It didn't have any lights on it that we could see. Um, but it was obviously metal. And it was obviously a machine. And uh, although I can't tell you that there was anyone inside of it, I believe that there was. Um, and it did something that, that, as far as I knew, was absolutely impossible. I'd been in the Air Force. I'd worked on the state of the art of our, of our uh, aviation capabilities. And here I was on the deck of a submarine in the conning tower. And I knew what we had to be able to have to go underwater. And I knew that the two were incompatible. Here's something that came from under the water and flew in the air and performed maneuvers and then came back down and interfaced with the water at tremendous speed uh, and remained intact, uh, which realistically, it, it, it never touched the water. The water sort of magically opened up in front of it, but something had to interface with that water. Anything that we had that interfaced with the water in that manner would have been disintegrated. It's like hitting a brick wall. So I was looking at a technology that as far as our laws of physics and what we knew at that time didn't exist. This was in 1966. Uh, and um, Ensign Ball was um, as shocked as I was. He called the captain to the bridge. He came up with the chief quartermaster who brought a camera. And uh, we all stood there and watched this occur over and over again for about 10 minutes. And I still, to this day, don't know if it was the same craft or a whole bunch of different craft going in and out of the water. But it seemed like that there was a hell of a lot of traffic on that freeway right there. <laughs> and we were watching it as we went by. We never changed course. We never lowered or, or increased our speed. Uh, we made no attempt to communicate or signal. Uh, we made no attempt to get closer. Um, and eventually, it just stopped. We were told not to discuss it with anyone, not even amongst ourselves, which was incredible. I never had been told anything like that in my life. You know, you can't talk about something. And to be told that we couldn't even talk about it amongst ourselves was even more extraordinary, I thought. Um, but we didn't. We didn't talk about it. Oh, all, all the time, the chief quartermaster was taking pictures of this. So I know photographs were made. Uh, what happened to those photographs, I have no idea. That's an amazing story. And despite what you think of Bill Cooper or what happened to him in the end, he comes across as fully credible and believable. He did later come to believe that much of the UFO narrative has been propagated by the deep state as a way to control certain aspects of the population, but I think he always believed that there was an unexplained or unknown component to the UFO phenomenon as a whole. Another recorded UFO incident in the Vietnam War took place in June of 1966 at the then U.S.-operated airbase at Nha Trang. The Nha Trang base was an important strategic position for the U.S. and their allies. 
Nha Trang typically housed about 2,000 American soldiers and many more ally soldiers and various personnel. On this summer night, a large gathering of soldiers were seated outside watching an outdoor movie on a large screen. There were also bulldozers doing work nearby, which I'm sure didn't help the movie experience, and there were crews preparing planes for a mission. Suddenly, the sky at the north end of the base lit up. The soldiers thought it was light from a security check rocket, which were fired routinely. Then they noticed that whatever was illuminating the sky had ascended above the tree line and was now accelerating rapidly to cover a mile or so, then stop instantly, only to repeat this impossible maneuver three or four times. The bright blue object then ascended to about 25,000 feet, stopped, then dove rapidly down to about 300 feet directly over the base. At this moment, all of the base electrical power, communications equipment, and radar units shut down, and the backup generators failed to operate. All of the heavy equipment in use and the planes being prepared for flight also shut down. The entire base, including the outdoor movie screen, went dark, and thousands of personnel watched this glowing object, a blue or blue-green sphere, hover just a few hundred feet overhead, then ascend vertically at a bullet speed. When the craft vanished, the power generators and other equipment sputtered back to life. Some things had to be restarted, but everything was physically back to normal. However, the witnesses were all shaken, especially considering that they were in a hot war and for all they knew, they were under attack from some exotic technology that had been poised to obliterate them all. The Department of Defense sent a team to investigate the incident, but no reports or comments have ever been published or otherwise made public. The only widely known photo of a UFO seen in the Vietnam War Zone was taken in 1967 by an American soldier who was riding in the back of a transport truck. The truck was traveling along a raised dirt road that crossed farmland in Chu Lai. The soldier was taking pictures of the landscape with his Yashica Electro 35 camera when he and others in the truck noticed a strange saucer-shaped object in the sky over the field. The soldier snapped one picture before the object streaked away, and I'll put a link to that photo in the show notes so you can see it. It shows the object in the sky and you can see a farmer behind what looked to be two steers or maybe mules pulling his plow. It's a typical grainy UFO photo from the 60s, but as they go, it's a great one. Another Vietnam War UFO report comes from Captain George Filler III, who was a U.S. Secret Service official. He was watching fighter jets conduct training exercises and perform maneuvers at 575 miles per hour when a saucer-shaped silver UFO appeared, circled the jet three times, then flew off ahead of the fighter jet at several times its speed. This happened multiple times during the exercise and the sightings affected the captain to such a degree that he retired from the military and dedicated the rest of his life to studying UFOs. Visit Renegade Files on Patreon for bonus episodes, dark intel files for each episode, and to help the show stay ad-free. Hit the Patreon link in the show notes, become an RFA agent, and I will see you in there. Cool, cool, cool. One of the most famous of the Vietnam War UFO experiences revolves around Pete Mazzola. 
Pete Mazzola was an Army infantryman on the front lines in the early days of U.S. involvement in the Vietnam conflict. Several times while in the jungle, he and others in his outfit saw lights in the night sky that had the brightness and size of large shooting stars, but that displayed erratic flight patterns and maneuverability. These bright objects would streak across the sky, stop instantly, or make 90-degree turns without slowing while traveling at what the men estimated to be thousands of miles per hour. One night, they found themselves on a small patch of raised dry ground while crossing a rice paddy, and suddenly they were surrounded by enemy soldiers who had taken up positions in the tree lines on all sides. They stayed low, took what cover they could manage, and tried to work a way out of their situation. It was amid this life-threatening predicament that they first saw several blue glowing objects rise into the air over the rice paddies and surrounding woodlands. As these objects attained an altitude of several hundred feet, the soldiers heard the sounds of heavy artillery and realized that the objects were being fired upon by the U.S. warships offshore to the south. At first, the men thought the lights were some kind of new enemy weapon or craft. But they then realized that the Viet Cong in the trees were also firing upon these crafts. All of the shells being hurled at the objects exploded in mid-air before ever hitting the UFOs. This is an unusual case of both sides thinking that the craft is from the other side and both firing on it. It's like the old thriller trope where the gangsters confront each other and discover what turns out to be the undercover cop in their ranks. Well, if he's not with us, and he's not with you, then who's he with? Once again, we have an event which had such a profound effect on one of the witnesses, in this case Mazzola, that he went on to form the Scientific Bureau for Investigation, or SBI, once he was back home in New York. This organization studied UFOs and paranormal events and published the SBI report until Mazzola's passing in 1987. Another Vietnam UFO incident took place in June of 1968. A recon team of U.S. Army Rangers, not exactly lightweights, were bivouacked in the DMZ to spy upon an encampment of Viet Cong soldiers. Around 0200, the rangers noticed a glowing blue light in the sky. The object passed to within one quarter of a mile from the ranger's position, then moved over the Viet Cong base, at which point the Viet Cong opened fire on the object. The object never altered its slow pacing speed and seemed to sustain no damage from the VC fire until it stopped to hover directly over them at an altitude of between 600 and 1,000 feet. Still taking fire from the ground, the glowing object emitted a bright beam of light which struck the ground and caused a visible explosion. This object moved slowly around the perimeter of the VC base, all the while taking heavy artillery fire from them and periodically deploying this light beam weapon until all ground-to-air fire was silenced and the base was reduced to a smoking pile of ash. The light then moved slowly away over the distant jungle and vanished into the far night sky. The rangers reported the attack, and the following morning the U.S. Army sent a recon team into the destroyed base to find the supplies and structures there burnt to a crisp, the large weapons melted, and any remaining bodies looking like Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru when Luke runs back home on Tatooine. 
We have a few more stories to get into, but at this point, I want to pause so we can go over a few aspects of this case as a whole. The subject of UFOs seen and interacted with during the Vietnam War is a different kind of UFO event. It isn't one sighting by a single person like the Socorro UFO event, and it isn't even a mass sighting like the Phoenix Light sighting. It's more of a collection of sightings and experiences that all happen in a specific territory and at a certain time in history, and that makes it unique. Whatever these sightings are, the one explanation that seems to be immediately dismissed is that of a hoax. It is unlikely that multiple military personnel across various service branches and regiments would get together to concoct false stories about UFOs, all with similar appearances and apparent capabilities. Especially in such a life and death situation and especially within a military framework where lying about any such activity could mean serious consequences. So I think we can rule out hoaxers right away. It also doesn't seem like some unknown enemy technology because time and time again we have situations where these UFOs attack both sides and where both sides attack them. Alright, on to the next encounters. In the summer of 1970, Captain William English of the U.S. Army Green Berets, stationed in Saigon, was called upon to locate a downed B-52 bomber which had been lost over Laos. The B-52 was initially developed by Boeing in the 1950s. It is the largest military aircraft ever deployed. The last ones were made in 1962, and the B-52 is still in use today. They're big. They are 159 feet long and have a wingspan of 185 feet. Fewer than 20 B-52s were lost in the Vietnam War. That summer, the crew of one B-52 reported contact with an unknown aircraft that they had seen visually but that they could not pick up on radar. They described the object as, quote, strange looking and covered in bright lights. It seems that the unidentified objects shadowed the bomber for a short time and maneuvered around it in ways that defied conventional aircraft capabilities. Insane acceleration, instant stops, right angle turns, all that. Then, immediately after one of the B-52 radio transmissions, all communications with the plane were lost. The aircraft was assumed to have crashed, and Captain English and his team of Green Berets were sent out to find the plane salvage what they could in the way of sensitive documents or valuable equipment, then sabotage the plane in such a way as to render it unusable if it were found by the enemy. It didn't take them long to locate the downed plane, but it was in such dense jungle that they couldn't parachute down to it, so they had to land at a nearby spot and hike to the plane. When they arrived at the crash site, the men were unnerved and confused by the scene. The plane was upright, just as it would sit on the runway, perched among the jungle trees. It was 100% intact with no visible damage to the exterior. There were no broken trees or foliage in any direction for as far as they could see around the plane. The only damage to the plane was some denting on its underside where it sat on the jungle floor, its landing gear still retracted. Captain English and his team took care to be sure they were not being led into a trap. 
They scouted the area and found no traps or evidence that anyone else had been to the crash site. Then they move to go into the plane and inspect the situation. They discover that all of the doors and hatches are still locked and they have to use explosives to gain access through one of the locked doors. Inside, all members of the flight crew were still buckled into their seats. All were dead. All had unexplained, severely lacerated skin, multiple broken bones, but very little blood loss. All of the bomber's payload of munitions was also intact. All of the crew's instruments and equipment was stored and arranged neatly as if the aircraft were still in flight. The entire interior of the plane was neat and orderly. There was no debris at the site, the plane was undamaged, and no trees or foliage were damaged for miles around the plane. It was as if it had been set down there by a giant hand. The Green Berets collect all of the plane's logbooks, technical manuals, and mission-related intelligence that they can find aboard. They collect the dog tags of all the airmen on the plane, and then they rig the bomb payload hold with explosives to destroy the plane and the bombs when they leave. Captain English made his report back in Saigon, and it seems like they didn't dig what he had to say. He was demoted and eventually discharged, and he returned to the U.S., Angered by this treatment, he took all of the photos and documentation from the event and set out to contact any UFO researcher who may be able to help him solve the mystery of exactly what happened to that B-52 in Laos. English reached out to many prominent UFOlogists in his pursuit. One of these UFO researchers who responded was, yep, you guessed it, J. Allen Hynek. Now, you know things are about to get real anytime we're researching a UFO story here at Renegade Files and we cross paths with our old friend and the original UFO gangster himself, J.A.H. J. Allen Hynek told English that the details of the downed B-52 bared an eerie similarity to a cargo plane that was found in the Soviet Union in 1961. That plane disappeared from radar screens only to be found later, perfectly intact, in the middle of a densely wooded area in Siberia, again with no damage to any surrounding trees or terrain. I'll be honest, I didn't realize there were densely wooded areas in Siberia, and I'll take J. Allen Hynek's word for it. In the Soviet incident, it was reported that the crew of the cargo plane were nowhere to be found in or around the aircraft. My summary. Sometime in the summer of 2021, I began kicking around the idea of starting a paranormal and unsolved mystery podcast. My first notes were in June of 2021, and Renegade Files was launched in September of that year. As you know, I've had a lifelong interest in the paranormal, UFOs, and genuine conspiracy research. Much of the work involved in making many of the episodes so far has been a mixture of documenting things I already knew something about and learning new things along the way. But sometimes, Renegade Files will lead me into a subject that I knew nothing about at all, and then, as I dig into the research, more and more information unfolds in the most surprising ways. This episode is exactly that. In fact, when I first decided to make episode 18 about UFOs in the Vietnam War, I wondered if there would be enough material for a full report on the subject. 
And that very fact is part of the overall mystery of this topic. As I searched and read and scavenged for information on UFOs in the Vietnam War, to my delight, each story led to another story and the full picture of UFOs experienced during that war began to paint a very suspicious picture. Suspicious for a few reasons. First, why and how is it possible that this subject, a subject overflowing with so much dramatic testimony and multi-person sightings, and CE2 UFO encounters or close encounters of the second kind. Recall that a close encounter of the second kind is where UFO experiences leave behind physical evidence. In this case, exploded ships, downed B-52s, and destroyed Viet Cong bases. I mean, that's some pretty solid CE2 evidence. Remember, J. Allen Hynek himself spent a year investigating the Socorro UFO case and went gaga over some scorched vegetation and three depressions in the desert ground. And here we have Navy patrol boats being blown out of the water while guys on another boat watch. We have Army Rangers, not the kinds of guys to make stuff up for fun, watching an encampment of enemy soldiers get fried by glowing orbs. We have guys on an ammunition ship watch something burst out of the ocean, fly through the air, buzz the tower of a nearby navy ship, then vanish back into the ocean. A B-52 reports being harassed by UFOs, loses radio contact, so a team of Green Berets is sent to do recon on the downed bomber, and they find it sitting on the jungle floor with no damage whatsoever. Not a single aircraft window is broken. The wings are intact. Not one tree branch is broken as far as they can see. And the crew is all dead, with their skin severely abraded, but missing no blood. And everything inside the plane is still in its place, as if they had just made the smoothest landing in history. How is it that these dramatic stories are so little known? Even among people who know more about UFOs than the average hipster walking in front of a bus looking for a rare Pokemon on his phone. Secondly, this case is mysterious because so often when we talk about UFOs in the context of weapons of war and the military, we find cases where the operators of the UFOs do what seems like benevolent things. They shut down nuclear weapons. They disable guidance systems on intercontinental ballistic missiles. They show up in an area known for nuclear testing and do a slow flyover to let 10,000 people watch them. But in this case, these UFOs are not conducting some humanitarian effort to shut the bombs off. They're blasting boats out of the water. They're incinerating VCs and melting their entire camp. They're passing over battlefields and getting shot at by both sides. Exactly what in Sam Hill is going on here? It's a confusion of violent action and reaction and aside from mass and individual destruction, nothing else seems to be getting accomplished. It's ironic that this should be the UFO experience in the Vietnam War, because the total insanity of it fully mirrors much of the war as a whole. It's like Captain Willard said in Apocalypse Now. The war was being run by a bunch of four-star clowns who were going to end up giving the whole circus away. 
Is it possible that this dumpster fire of a war attracted similar energies from deep space and the aliens who showed up were just another bunch of hooligans in the mix? And yes, it should be addressed that the Vietnam War took place at a time when psychotropic and psychedelic drugs were, if not ubiquitous, at least common. And that may account for a UFO sighting or two, but no amount of weed or acid could set a B-52 on the jungle floor without breaking a tree branch or cracking a plane window. And all of the other encounters involved UFOs seen by multiple witnesses in different companies and different branches of the military. There's no way that all of those people were having the same LSD trip, just like there's no way that all of them were colluding to make up the stories. Something illogical, unexplainable, and often fatal was happening to the soldiers in the Vietnam War. And it wasn't all coming from Washington. So that's another fun ride made just for you, the Renegade Files faithful. Share the show with your friends by sending them our website link, then they can easily find us wherever they listen to audio online. Join me here next time, and together we'll tune the shortwave radio dial to the Jungle Villa Outpost Pirate Signal and delve into another unsolved mystery, paranormal event, or covert culture conspiracy. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, and now I'm off to explore the dusty scrolls in the archives of Minas Tirith. Stay wild, wizard child. <laughs>